What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, let's pray. Our loving Father, thank you that we come to the wonderful end of a wonderful chapter, so full of assurance, and we pray that your Spirit would do his work, that not only would we understand what you're saying, but we deeply, deeply believe it to be true. We pray this. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder uh, how you react when you get a large and unexpected gift. Uh, Do you react with grateful delight and praise, or is your response more subdued? Do you say, yes, but almost as if it's too good to be true? Um, I recall a time when, uh, a long time ago, when Narelle and I were living in Newcastle. I've just finished a ministry apprenticeship there, about to move to Sydney to undertake four years of Bible college. We were wondering how we'd pay for Sydney rents. It was all a bit tricky. She just had a baby. She would not be working. And then at that time, my mother rang me up and said, look, Chris, we've just put your grandmother into a nursing home and we're wondering what to do with the house and would it be okay for you to live rent-free in that house for a whole year? Well, here was a massive answer to prayer, a great gift, which we hadn't expected, and how did I react? Did I say, oh, that is so wonderful, thank you, yes. Well, I'm ashamed to say what I said was, "Uh, well, that sounds really good, but um, I think we'll have to think about it. I can't believe I said that. One of God's good gifts to me over the years has been to to respond rightly in grateful appreciation when someone does something for me. Okay, so how do you respond when you get an unexpected gift? Is it grateful delight, a grateful reception of it, or more muted? Well, Paul has just outlined in Romans chapter 8 the wonderful gift that God has given us in Jesus. He's given us all these bases for assurance that we have. So let's go through them. In chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus on the day of judgment. No condemnation. Our little brains can't even compute how wonderful that is. Um, then he says in verse 2, you've been set free from the law of sin and death, which was over you. Set free. Instead, you have, verse 5, the gift of God's spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus, the, the transforming power of God himself 
in your life, working now, which has a promise of resurrection to come. And then uh, we're told in verse 11, not only that, by the Spirit, you've been adopted into God's family. You have the status of the firstborn son who, in verse 17, you'll share an inheritance with Jesus. And that inheritance, verse 21, is the hope of a renewed creation. Wonderful. And then now, now we have the assurance of God's spirit with us so that even when we groan, he is taking those groanings. He's turning them into prayers that words cannot express. He's praying for us. And then last week, we heard this massively encouraging news in verse 28, that whatever happens in life, whatever happens, how bad it is, God nevertheless is still working in that for our good, for the good of those who love him, which is to make us more and more like his son, that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. He says, this is your glory. This is what you've been predestined for. Isn't this this wonderful, this massive, massive expose of the gifts that God gives us in Jesus, all these different bases that we have for assurance in our life? This is wonderful. And you contrast that with what well, people who don't believe in Jesus have. What do they do? They try and struggle through life as best they can. They'll enjoy some things. That's good. They'll, they'll achieve some wins. However, uh, when trouble, when weakness, sickness, and ultimately death comes, it'll all be stripped away. It's hopeless. And so people can either get frustrated and angry or just resign with kind of fatalistic resignation or just this maybe desperate hope that whatever God is out there, that there'll be a better life on the other side and that maybe, hopefully, they'll have done enough to enjoy it. It's hopeless. Contrast that to what we have. It's wonderful, this great assurance, this massive, massive gift. And so, you know, given this gift, how unexpected, how huge it is, what's your reaction? What shall you say in response to it? Do you eagerly receive it and go, yes, thank you so much, this is brilliant? Or is your response more muted, more cautious? Yes, good, but like my response when my mother rang me up. What's your response? Now, you're probably sitting here thinking, well, I know Chris says that I should be <laughs> uh, receive it with delight, but actually my response, if I'm honest, is more muted. Well, guess what? Probably so is mine. Why? Because we have fears. And fears aren't irrational. Fears come from our own experience. Uh, we might have had something wonderful given to us, but it's been taken away. Or our capacity to enjoy it was taken. And so we hear about a wonderful gift and we think, yes, but... Paul goes through five fears that test our assurance. Here's the fears. First of all, that there are powers or enemies or forces that are too strong for us out there, bigger than, bigger than us. Uh, Satan will conspire. The temptation to sin will prove too strong. Guilt over past sins will prove too much. So the first fear, there, there are forces that are just too big for us, which will rob us of, our, of this gift. Secondly, we will miss out on being rich. Uh, this is often an unspoken fear Christians have. But because we love and serve the one who gave up his life for us and he who encourages us to give up our lives for others and to sacrificially uh, give to those in need, uh, when we follow this, uh, there's a sinful part of us which can feel like we're missing out. Uh, we're giving away our money. It's not our money. But we feel like that. We're giving it away. 
So every week, if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be giving money to support your church, you'll be giving money to support your uh, mission, to support people in need, um, and, and, and others as well. And there can be a wrong way of thinking which says, I, I would have been better hanging on to it. I'd be enjoying life so much more. I'm missing out. I'm missing out. So the second fear is, yes, we will miss out on being rich. And dwelling on this undermines our assurance. It takes away the um, joy of that which we've been given. Thirdly, the third fear is that someone will accuse me before God. Um, my guess is that all of us have in our lives uh, a memory which haunts us, uh, some past thing we've done. Uh, I have a few of these. Let me share one, which I'm ashamed to share. Uh, it was in high school. I had a friend who was true, um, but hung on me a bit like a limpet. This friend was not picking up the normal social cues about, you know, probably give me a bit of space. So I had to say something very forceful. And I remember saying to him, look, I don't want you hanging around me. I, you know, I think we should find other friends. And he kind of laughed it off because he thought I was making a joke because I used to joke. But I wasn't making a joke. And so then I had to be even more forceful. And I remember, I'm ashamed to say, I remember looking at him saying, I don't want you in my life. I don't want you to be my friend. Stop following me. And I walked away. And I remember the pain and distress and hurt that came across his face. And this is a, a shameful memory I have. Maybe you have memories like that which haunt you, things you've done which you regret, which you would undo if you could, but you can't. And so maybe you think someone will accuse you before God that as good as the gifts are that God's promised, they won't be for you. Fourth fear is related to that, that someone could condemn me before God. Not only will I be accused, but I'll be condemned. Uh, aren't all our deeds open before God? Um, you know, doesn't he know the motivations of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds? It's all open before God. Satan accused Job, didn't he? Well, couldn't he accuse us? I won't just be accused, I'll be condemned. Fifth uh, fear that undermines our assurance that despite what the Bible says that God is for us, life's hardships and sufferings prove the contrary. Uh, the difficulties that you've experienced in life are are evidence that God has given up on you, that God is not for you. He's not as pro you as he says he is. Um, maybe you've begun life as a Christian and frankly it hasn't gone as well as you thought. There are disappointments, there are griefs, your plans have fallen to the ground. Um, there have been massive losses, hurts, disappointments. And maybe this is undermining your sense of joy about the assurance that he's, he promises. Well, these are all real fears. And in the final part of Romans 8, Paul addresses them. Now, how does he address them? Two points, but both are important. First of all, he asks questions. He, he addresses them by asking questions. And what he's doing is he's saying, okay, here are these fears, but let's ask questions now and see whether they stack up in light of the wonderful things that God has done for us. Okay, so what he's doing is he's getting us to critically evaluate our fears that are real in light of the gospel. And what he wants us to do is to um, synthesize truth. So gospel truth actually informs our fears and teaches them and makes them shrink. That's what he's wanting us to do. Secondly, he, he has a very positive tone and it's meant, we're meant to see the tone. That is, he's not sort of entering into the pain of the situation like a counsellor might and say, oh yes, that's terrible, terrible. Um, 
He, of course, he's been through all this hardship, but he's come out on the other side and the gospel has informed him. And now he's getting us to look back and say, ha, are these any issues? I don't think so. <laughs> he's very positive. Okay, so let's go through. He sets out five questions to quell five fears. The first fear is that there are powers or enemies or forces too strong for us. What's Paul's answer? Verse 31, he says, uh, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, you ask that question and the implied answer is no one, except we can think of many people, many forces, who are anti the God of the Bible. You know, there are people out there who are against us because we're followers of Jesus and followers of God. Um, but then he's saying, now hang on, if God, the living God, the true God, who is overall, bigger than all, if he really is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, in the end, no one. No one can, not in the long run. There's massive assurance here. You know, what possible spiritual power or personal force is there out there that's more powerful than God? None. None. So he has us, is what he's saying. And this first truth, that if God is for us, who can be against us? This, if you grasp that question, really the rest fall into line. That's the important one. The second fear is that we're going to miss out on being rich. You know, and Paul effectively says, do you really think we're going to miss out? In verse 32, have a look. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now, the argument is from the greater to the lesser. If God has done the greater thing, then of course he's going to do the lesser. What's the greater thing? The greater thing is him not sparing, but giving up his only son, the one who was most precious to him. That giving up or giving over word is the same as that used by the Jewish leaders who give Jesus over to Pilate. And Pilate, who gives Jesus over to the uh, soldiers to have their way with him. Well, the father gives over, gives up his son. He did not spare him. He gave up his son. This is not done with callous brutality or unfeeling, uh, unfeeling nature. The father does it out of deep love for us, for us. Uh, and there's pain in this. He did not spare his only son, the one who was most precious to him, most precious. But he gave, gives up his son for us. If he's done this greater thing, how will he not also, along with giving us his son, graciously give us all things? This all things sounds big, doesn't it? It's lesser than the sacrifice of what God did when he gave us his son. Uh, he will give us all things. This is wonderful. Um, now, As Ray Galea says, uh, there's something wonderful about the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is that false teaching that says that uh, believers in Jesus can have health and wealth and prosperity now. The wonderful thing about it is that the Bible does promise health, wealth and prosperity. The lousy thing about the prosperity gospel is the timing. Now, we're not promised these things now, but here's the point. We are promised them. So those who believe in Jesus, we are not going to miss out. God is not short-handed. He doesn't just give us 
pittance of change. He will give us all things. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Um, it's not that we have old money, you know, money that's been inherited from past generations, nor even that we have new money in God's sight, that which we make ourselves. What God promises us is future money. Now, financial advisors are across this, right? They talk about financial security. Let's be clear, and sorry if you're a financial advisor, but financial advisors, this, this is an anomaly. There, there is no such thing as financial security in this world. Uh, no financial advisor could have predicted COVID that sent Wall Street and the ASX plunging and, and ground the world economy to a halt. No financial advisor is omniscient. They can't predict what's going to happen. And even if they could, in 100 years' time when you're dead, how good is the money that Bill Gates has to him? It, it will be worth nothing, okay? There is no such thing as financial security that lasts, except in Christ Jesus, because we are promised all things. In this life, God graciously gives us his son. In the next, all things. What a wonderful promise. God is no man's debtor. We are not going to miss out on being rich. And Paul wants the gospel to inform this and to take away that fear, to let it go. Third fear, the fear that someone will accuse me before God. Well, how does Paul answer that? In verse 33, he says, who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? You know, it's God who justifies. Um, who, who do we think is going to be allowed to prosecute us? Is it going to be Satan? Well, we think, well, what about Job? Didn't Satan enter God's courtroom in Job chapters 1 and 2? If you haven't read that book, it's a good one. Uh, yes, he did. He entered God's courtrooms and he accused um, Job before God in heaven, uh, Job on earth. And he said, God says, have you considered my servant Job, a man who's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil? Yes, says Satan, but he would, wouldn't he, given how much you've given him? Take that away. Take his wealth. Take his family away. We'll see how true he is. And so that happens. God says, have you considered my servant Job, a man who's blameless and upright still, who fears God and shuns evil? Skin for skin, you attack him, his person, you know, his health. We'll see how true he is. And so that happens. In Job chapters 1 and 2, Satan is allowed in the heavenly courtroom and he does accuse Job before God. So we think from that, well, Satan, therefore, is the accuser, isn't he? Wrong. He was the accuser. Jesus' coming changes that. He is no longer the accuser. He cannot be. Do you remember that moment in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus has sent out his disciples and given them authority to do all the things he had been doing, to, to preach about the kingdom, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons? And they come back and they're full of joy. And they say, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. And what does Jesus say? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He is not in the heavenly courtroom anymore. And what's he saying? <clears throat> it's because the disciples had been proclaiming the kingdom. That is that now sinners can come into God's kingdom. They can be there and they can be under his saving and loving rule. And why is this possible? Because Jesus will go to the cross and he will pay for the sins of God's people. And he will remove from them um, any need for further punishment uh, to be paid. <clears throat> what has happened is that Jesus has pulled Satan's teeth. He no longer has a bite. He no longer has power to accuse legitimately. 
Uh, what's Satan going to say, even if he was allowed in the heavenly courtroom? Uh, look at this person, your servant, you know, Cameron or, or, or Sally or, or Chris. Or, you know, what's he going to say? Look at what they've done. They deserve more punishment. No. Jesus saying, I've paid it in full once for all. Get out. You have no right to be here. Get out. You cannot accuse them once I have paid for all their sins once for all. You cannot say anything which is going to condemn them if they are justified. Now, what does justification mean? If someone is justified through faith in Jesus, here's the wonderful truth. It's a legal term and it describes someone coming into God's courtroom and God, the judge, bringing down his gavel and pronouncing his verdict and saying, not guilty. And we hear that and think, hang on, uh, every person is a sinner. Is God lying here? Is he doing something dodgy? No, he would be if we were coming into the courtroom guilty and he declared us not guilty. But here's the wonderful thing. When you have faith in Jesus, you come in not by yourself. That's the key. You come in united with him in faith so that God the Father cannot see you alone if you have faith in Jesus. He sees you through his son, his son's righteousness, his righteous life that he lived uh, that we haven't. He sees that as standing for you. His son's death for all of your sins, once for all on the cross. He paid the punishment in full. He was the full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so we come in righteous, sins paid for, and the Father says, not guilty. This is the wonderful truth that those who have faith in Christ Jesus are justified, declared to be righteous in God's sight. If that has happened, no one can accuse us before God. Could someone else do it? Um, if it's not Satan, well, if God has justified us, no one else actually will have a right to even open their mouths before those that God has declared not guilty. They just won't be allowed to speak. <laughs> no one can bring dirt up against you if you're in Christ Jesus, okay? You simply won't be allowed. What about yourself? You know, you'll have heard it said, uh, I can forgive others, but I can't forgive myself. Well, why not? Well, we know why, don't we? It's because we ourselves have deep regret and pain at the memory of having hurt other people and we cannot make amends and we regret that we have done these things and so we find it hard to forgive ourselves. Now, gently, this needs to be challenged. Are you greater than God? If God has declared you forgiven, if through faith in Jesus you are righteous, why do you hold against yourself things that he has let go? You are not a greater judge than God is. Now, okay, you can understand that, but still find it hard. I find it hard. What's the solution? Here's the solution. I think what we need to do is pray, to daily pray about ourselves in line with the wonderful truths of the gospel. Here's what I mean. To pray this sort of prayer, Lord, thank you that I am righteous before you, not because of me, but because of Jesus. Thank you that even though I don't deserve it, you have declared me to be right in your sight. Thank you that you are bigger than any sin that I have done. Thank you that Jesus' death covers me, even though I don't deserve it. And even though I keep on struggling and fail. Uh, thank you that in regard to other people, you are bigger than the pain and the sin that I have done against them. 
And thank you that you are good at turning that which is evil into good. And I pray that you do that in the life of the people that I've heard. That's the sort of prayer I pray. Okay? And that's the sort of prayer which can help you come to the place where you forgive yourself, where you don't accuse yourself, where you don't condemn yourself. Okay. Fear number four, that if God really knew us, and we know that he does deeply, then surely someone can condemn us before God and God will listen. But what does Paul say? Verse 34. Who is it that condemns? No one. Well, it's Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, also interceding for us. I love this. I love this truth. Um, Who is the one who has the legitimate authority in heaven to be able to condemn anyone? Well, it is the one who will be the judge of all. Who is that person? Is it God the Father? No, it's not God the Father. It is God the Son, Christ Jesus. Do you remember the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25? When the Son of Man comes and all his angels with him, he will gather the nations together and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll say to the sheep on the right, come uh, into the eternal life prepared for you and for the angels. And he'll say to the ones on the left, uh, depart from me into the eternal fire. Um, This is describing the day of judgment, right? But who is the one who's the judge? Is it God the Father? No, it is the Son of Man, Jesus, God the Son, who's on the throne. And he's the one who's in the position to judge. Now, here is the wonderful truth of the gospel, that the one who is appointed to be the judge of all at the end of time is also our saviour. Okay? Now, this is, this is great. He who has died for us all our sins once for all, who raised to life to give, bring us life, and who right now is interceding for us in heaven, doing his work as our high priest, If all that is true, we don't need to fear the day of judgment, do we? And I love this. If it was the case that God the Father was the judge and God the Son, Jesus, is our saviour, right, then we might wrongly think that because Jesus has saved us, even though that's true, on the day of judgment, God the Father might have a different point of view. Now, this wouldn't be the case because the Father and the Son's will exactly align. The Son does what his Father... um, says and what his father wants and delights in it and the father loves the son and you know there's there's no division there between father and the son but if the father was the one who was the judge and the son was the one who was our savior we might wrongly think that because even though jesus is our savior the father might have the last word and we might be condemned and our assurance would be taken from us right Here's the wonderful truth of the gospel. The one who is the judge is also the one who is the saviour. We don't need to be afraid of condemnation. Paul said it, hasn't he? Verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is it who condemns? No one. Well, actually, it's Christ Jesus, but the one who died, who rose to life, and is interceding for us at the right hand of God. Now, interceding. Uh, This is a great truth, isn't it? uh, We we heard in verse 27 that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. This is wonderful. Here we're told that Christ Jesus also intercedes for us. This is a massive comfort to Christians who are anxious or depressed. Uh, I've visited Christians in hospital and all they can do is curl up in a ball and don't feel like praying at all. 
And it's such an assuring comfort to them to be able to open Romans 8 and say, even though you don't feel like praying at the moment, don't worry, because the Holy Spirit is praying for you. He's taking your groans and he's turning them into prayers which are personal for you. And that at the same time, for every sin you remember, which you feel condemned under the weight of, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for you as your high priest and saying, paid in full. This is a massive comfort. No one has the authority to go over Jesus and say they need to pay more because only Christ is the judge. And the one who is the judge is also the one who is your saviour. He who has died, who has risen, and is at the right hand of God, interceding, still at work for you. Well, you might be thinking, yes, that's all very well, but what about real-life hardship? What about the evidence of suffering in your life? Doesn't that testify that God is not for you? Uh, here's the fifth fear, that life's hardships and sufferings can prove that God's somehow given up on us. Well, Paul again asks us to question that in the light of the gospel. He says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written? For your sake we face death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now he quotes that, Psalm 44 verse 22, with the assumption that these things are normal. Hardship, sufferings are normal experiences for Christians and it's important we get our expectations right. If you've become a Christian and think therefore life will be a breeze and nothing will go wrong for you, you'll set yourself up for massive disappointment and discouragement. Um, but sometimes we can think that, can't we? I think that's why Paul quotes Psalm 44. This was a, if you read the psalm, it's a generation of Israelites who are having a hard time in battle with other foreign countries and they're losing. And they're thinking, this is unfair. It's not like we've given up on you, God. Previous generations of Israelites did that and they suffered loss, but we're not like that. And this uh, verse quoted in, in Romans 8 uh, is there to make the point that hardship and loss it's the normal experience for Christians. It was true for Jesus. It's going to be true for us. But here's the question. Just because these things are true, hardship and suffering will come, does that mean that somehow God has turned his love from us? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. How doesn't it? Well, Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors? What planet is Paul on? <laughs> He'd call us more than conquerors. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like you're a, more than a conqueror uh, over your fears that you know anything could come your way and you won't be rocked by it? Well, what's he mean, more than conquerors? It's more than a victor, isn't it? A victor is someone who's won a battle. A conqueror is someone who's defeated a whole enemy, destroyed the enemy. There are no more enemies. He says we're more than conquerors. What's he mean? He means that those these things will come, hardships, sorrow, trouble, persecution, famine, etc. We will go through. They will not destroy us. They will not shake us. Now you might think, but hang on, I'm not the one who has that level of assurance. I'd like to distinguish now between the assurance that God gives us, which is objective, which is based upon 
his love for us in Christ Jesus and our appreciation, our subjective awareness of that. Okay. Our assurance that we have in Jesus is true, whether or not we're aware of it. That is, he has got hold of us and his love for us in Christ Jesus is like the ballast in a in an old sailing ship. So think of an old sailing ship that used to have ballast in the bottom, which was heavy cargo, so that when the ship would go through a storm, instead of being buffeted and turn over in the gale, it would hold steady and it would move through life's stormy gales. Okay, God's assurance for us in Christ Jesus, his steadfast, gutsy, determined, sacrificial, committed, faithful, loyal love, that it's like a ballast and he's given us this assurance and we will go through life's gales and there will be storms but we will not be buffeted we will get through we're more than conquerors through him who loves us so what does this mean um what it means is that in one way our appreciation of our assurance uh, our sense of our own assurance in one way it doesn't matter uh, God has assured us. He will get us through. Okay. Um, but on the other hand, this assurance is so true, so solid, that Paul has spent nine verses addressing our fears, causing us to critically reflect on them in the light of the gospel, so that we would have a subjective awareness of this assurance. We would be convinced. In other words, we would believe what we believe. That this truth, which is so solid and dependable and reliable and help, uh, an anchor for our soul, that we'd be aware of it and we'd believe it and we'd emotionally understand it and hold it to be true in our lives. Don't worry if that's not you yet. This is God's work of the Spirit uh, in your life uh, to convince you more and more as you understand the gospel more and more and as you reflect on God's love for you in Christ Jesus. He will teach you. He will teach you. But he does want you to get to that point where you can understand and you do not doubt and you can go through life rejoicing, rejoicing. So God has laid out uh, through Paul uh, all these different bases for our assurance. Um, a massive gift. What's your response? Do you rejoice and accept it with joy? Or do you say, oh, well, it's good, but... A more muted response. I think we should praise God and accept it with joy. Will you do that with me? Our loving Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, for Jesus, for your love for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the life-giving gift of your spirit, the promise of resurrection, the promise of a shared inheritance with Christ, uh, the promise of a re renewed creation. Thank you for your spirit groaning with us, for Jesus interceding for us, and that nothing can separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. We praise you. We praise you. The great gift of justification, your love for us, we praise you. And we ask, Lord, do that work of your spirit so that subjectively uh, our emotional beliefs would catch up with what we know to be true in the gospel. And thank you that over all that, you hold us and you assure us of your immense love. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.